Our text this morning was read to you uh, from verse 13 to 25, but we're going to be looking specifically at verses 22 through 25 of 1 Peter. Let me just read those verses, uh, at least the first two verses to you of that section, 22 and 23. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. To have a sincere love of the brethren. I heard another Bible teacher used this illustration and I thought it was very appropriate for this passage. You are familiar with the Grinch who stole Christmas. This is not seasonal, but it's appropriate, but it's at least makes a great point. You remember the Grinch stole all the presents from Whoville and took him up to his cave where he lived as a recluse and a hermit by himself because he didn't like being around people. And so he went up to his mountain with this sled full of Max was helping him, his dog, was helping him get it up to the top of that mountain. He thought he had succeeded in taking Christmas away from everybody in Whoville, only to hear them get up on Christmas morning and sing songs, bring about the realization that Christmas was not about presents and wild beasts and all those kinds of things that you eat, but it was about something that goes on in the heart. And he sat there and he had that realization but happened to turn his back and see that sled full of gifts about to go over the edge of the cliff. And he immediately panicked because he realized he had to save those gifts to get them back to the people. And so he goes up there and single-handedly holds onto that sled that's about to go over the cliff and something happens. And the narrator says this, his heart grew 10 times bigger that day, something like that, 10 sizes bigger. His heart got bigger at that moment, and he was able, of course, to get the sled, take this presence back down to Whoville, and eat and enjoy the time with the people. What happened to him is what this passage is about. It's about all of a sudden, he wants to be around people. All of a sudden, he has a, a change of attitude, a change of perspective, a change of what's important in life, and it's all because of something that happened in his heart. That's what made the Grinch different. He got over his Grinchiness, quite frankly, by a heart change because his heart was transformed. And that's us, folks. That's a great illustration as to how we do what these verses are telling us to do. It requires a transformed heart. To love sincerely, to love fervently, can only happen when the heart has been change. Prior to our salvation, we did not have hearts that wanted to honor God. Prior to our salvation, we had hearts that wanted to stay away from God. We did not even want God to exist. We wanted a life without God. We certainly didn't care about others. We cared about ourselves. I'm not saying we don't still struggle with these kinds of things, but the point is it was our hearts that were changed to give us any inclination or any desire whatsoever to want to please God. Before we're saved, our hearts are empty and vile. You read this in Genesis 6-5. The intent and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what God said about the heart of man. 
God's, in, in, in Psalm 14, the fool is the one who says, there is no God. He's corrupt. He does no good. There's no one who does good. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is more deceitful and wicked. This is the condition of man. This is the condition of everyone prior to salvation. Our hearts are depraved. The Ethiopian wants to change his, cannot change the color of his skin. The leopard cannot get rid of his spots. And you who do, you cannot do good who are accustomed to doing evil. That's Jeremiah chapter 12, 13. You cannot change yourself. That is your nature. And that is the condition of what we're like on the inside. Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications. It's the heart. The heart is the problem. It's not what's outside of us that defiles us. It's what's inside of us that defiles us. And if we're going to change, as we've talked about in our study this morning, is if we're going to change, it has to come from within. And we can understand, if that's our condition, we can understand why a holy God would not want to come near us because we're so unholy. Turn with me, if you will, to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. This is Ezekiel the prophet telling us of a salvation that is to come, of which we are now recipients of. This was written prior to the coming of Christ. And this is the prophecy that's given in verse 25 and following. He says in verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is God. God will do this. I, I have, you just notice that as I read this, the, the, the pronoun is I. It is God speaking. It is God who does all of this. I, I cannot get rid of the, I can't change myself. This is what God has to do. I will, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you, notice, a new heart, and put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You see that? Our hearts have been changed by God through the gospel. And one of the changes that the heart, excuse me, one of the changes that the gospel brings in our lives is how we interact with other people and how we get along with other people. Particularly in our passage in Peter, other believers. When, when you become a Christian, you're given a new affection. When you become a Christian, you're given a new direction. And in, in fact, one of the indications that you are a Christian is that you have this affection or this love and concern for other believers. You remember the scene in the upper room where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Turn there in John 13. John 13. This is Jesus getting down and taking the role of a servant to wash his disciples' feet on the night before he's to be crucified. John chapter 13. And this was kind of a mortifying experience for them for Jesus to take that role. But he used it to teach them something. 
He used it to teach them by example something about how they were to treat each other. In John 13, verse 14, if then, the, after he's washed their feet, if then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash my, does he say my? No. It doesn't say my feet. It says one another's feet. I didn't do this to you so you could wash my feet. No, I did this to you so you would know that you're supposed to do that for one another's feet. Go down to verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is our testimony to the world. This is our testimony to the others that we belong to Christ. This is one of the evidences of the fact that we belong to Christ. We have love for others. Others, one another in the body of Christ. Turn to 1 John. Turn there. John was in the room that night. John was there that night. And he wrote this in 1 John. Turn there. 1 John. You're leaving John. Now you're going to 1 John. Toward the back of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 3. Once again, I'm answering the question is, or I'm making the statement that this is an indication that a person is a Christian, is they have love for other Christians. Verse 10, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. By this, verse 10 says, 1 John chapter 3, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. So you've got two children, children of God, children of the devil. Children who belong to God, children who belong to the devil. How is it obvious? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. So you have a moral test, how they live their life. Nor the one who does not love his brother. You have the love test. You have a moral test and you have a love test to determine who's of God and who's not. Because see, that's what they were struggling with in 1 John. They were struggling with assurance, am I really a Christian? The Gnostics say one thing and you say something else. How do I know if I'm a Christian? John writes 1 John to answer that, to give them assurance. This is how you can be assured that you belong to God. How do you, th- how do you think about God's commands? That's the moral test. And how do you think about God's children, other believers? Look at verse 11. For this is the message that which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Verse 12 says, because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. He was just jealous or envious. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know, here's, what, here's this important statement, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. We know that we have been truly saved. That's what that statement means, because we love the brethren. That's your assurance. It's, I have this affection for the brethren. I did not have that before. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, Jesus said that, to hate in your heart is to be like a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. You see, they're looking for assurance. They're looking for, they want to know for sure, certain. He says, you will know by your love. It's not a love you put there. It's a love that's put in your heart at salvation. Romans 5, 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. He puts that there. And it's the love that is lived out and shown to others. Go down to chapter 4, verse 7. First John, First John chapter 4, verse 7. You see it again, it just goes on. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. That's the source of it is from God. It's not something I just try to muster up. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So saying God is love and as his children who have been loved, we're to love like he loves. That's what he's saying in these sections. You say you belong to God, then you love like he loves. Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians, you don't have to turn there, but Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Beloved, be imitators of God. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you. We're to reflect that love to one another. And it can only happen if you're born again. This is the point. This is the point. It can only happen if we are born again. And that's what this passage in Peter is all about. Once you get saved, it's what I said before, Romans 5.5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's like God enlarges our shrunken hearts, gets rid of the grinchiness, and fills us, enables us, to do something that we don't naturally want to do, and that is to love others. And you know something, the context of 1 Peter is they're about to face persecution. They're going through some very difficult times. Christianity is going to face some very difficult times. And you know what the tendency is in an environment like that? The tendency is to get inward. The tendency is to get self-protective. The tendency is to get self-obsessed. The tendency is to somehow hunker down. And that's not at all what Peter is saying they should do. He said, man, you've still got a responsibility to each other. And you've got to love each other. Don't get preoccupied with yourselves. Don't fall into that trap. Don't just think about yourself. You think about others. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about how I see that manifest in so many ways in the church leaders and some of the churches in Ukraine right now that are, they're facing bombing and, and, and they're staying right there to take care of people in 
not just words of love, but in deeds and truth. So how should we, two questions are answered here. How should we love one another? He's going to tell us how that should look. He's going to tell us that in verse 22. And then in verse 23, he is going to tell us why we can do that. So look at verse 22 of 1 Peter. Turn back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Here's the verse. says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. First phrase, I want to just talk about this, purified your souls. It's another way of saying you have been saved. When your soul is purified, it means you have been saved. And now you are pursuing a holy life. He saves you to pursue a holy life. Back in verse 15, he says, uh, we are called to be holy. You see that in 1 Peter 1.15. We're called to be holy ourselves because God is holy. So he says in verse 22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls. That's a perfect participle. That means this. It, is, it means that it's describing an act that took place in the past that still has continuing, that continues in the present. Something happened in the past when we obeyed the truth and our souls were purified. That's what the verse is saying. The moment we get saved, we're cleansed, we're purified. We are considered holy in God's eyes. I've told you that's positional. We're considered in God's eyes holy because we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. But, but from that moment on, we are commanded to be holy as God is holy. And you see this term, obedience to the truth, uh, used up in verse 2. But you also see in verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Turn there. I'll just turn over a couple pages or a page. In 1 Peter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? See that? Obey the gospel of God. Obedience to the truth we see in verse 22. We see that in other places as well, but, but it's a synonym for faith. Understand that. Obedience to the truth or obedience to the gospel is simply another way of saying faith in the gospel. Turn to John chapter 3. Hold your hand in 1 Peter and flip over to John chapter 3. And what he's doing by using the phrase obedience to the truth is he's defining what faith is. He's defining that faith is more than just an intellectual assent and praying a prayer. He is defining that faith, faith involves certain things. And you see this in John 3, 36. See, the gospel is something to be obeyed. That's the point I want you to pick up from this verse right now in verse 22 of 1 Peter chapter 1. But notice in John 3, 36, he says this. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. You see that? Same thing, but the wrath of God abides on him. We're talking about salvation there. Believe and obedience to the Son. Synonyms, two sides of the same coin. Turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. See that? 
I've been appointed as an apostle to bring about obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. The word obedience is a synonym for faith. Even though the word faith is not mentioned there, it's two sides of the same coin, like I just said a couple of minutes ago. Romans 10, 16, you can turn there, just write it down. They did not all heed the good news. They did not all obey the good news. Paul says, they did not heed it. They did not obey it. Same idea. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 is an important verse on this. He says, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to deal out retribution to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 2 Thessalonians 1.8. The point is, the point is being saved requires more than just believing or accepting Jesus into your heart. It's believing, some, it's believing the facts of the gospel so strongly that you turn from sin, that you repent, and that you follow Jesus. It's not just assenting to facts. It's not just intellectual assent. It's not just in our heads. It's volitional. It's volitional. It requires a commitment. It's a faith that follows. I think that's an important distinction to make. I think it's used several times. Peter is saying something in 1 Peter chapter 1 that Paul and John are both saying as well. Other apostles have said the same thing. It's the idea of obedience of faith. Excuse me, obedience of the truth. Obedience of faith. Heeding the good news. More than just intellectual, it's volitional. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. In verse 22, he says, So you've been saved. You've been, you've been saved. Your hearts have been purified, and you've been saved. Notice, for a sincere love of the brethren. The word love is phileo. The Lord that we get brotherly love from, the city of Philadelphia is called Philadelphia from that meaning, that very word, coming from that Greek word. It, it describes the love that you have for a friend. Uh, you can turn over to 514 of First Peter if you want to see it used again. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Be careful how you use that verse, but the point of that verse is simply, it, it's, you, you, there is a natural love for siblings, right? A natural love that siblings have for each other in the body of Christ. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's a certain love we have where we hug each other or put our arm around each other or something, some kind of show of affection toward one another. And every Christian is a member of God's family. And so it's a sibling love. It's a sincere, a sincere sibling kind of love, like in a family relationship. And Paul is, tells Timothy later in 1 Timothy chapter 5, the younger women are to be considered like sisters and the older men like fathers and the older women like mothers. And he just kind of describes a family relationship in the household of God. And there's this natural love that we would have for each other. Excuse me, it's not natural love, it's a supernatural love that we have for each other because we're all connected to Christ. And that word sincere, sincere you see in, back in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, 122 is without hypocrisy, meaning you aren't wearing a mask about it. In, in Peter's day, actors would wear a mask, and they might be sad on the outside, but that mask made them look like they were laughing or smiling. It means to wear a mask. 
So he says, don't wear a mask in your love. Make it be a sincere love, a true love from the heart. Don't be pretending to be something you are not. Don't be pretending to, to be pretending that you, that you love somebody, you don't really love them. He says, our love must be genuine and not fake. It must be, you've heard of peace fakers. Those are people who, who act like nothing's wrong when something really is wrong. Well, that can be a love faker as well, right? You can certainly pretend. And that's what he's saying, don't pretend. Don't pretend. Don't act like you love each other when you really don't. He says the same thing, Paul says the same thing in Romans 12, 9. Don't let, your, let love be without hypocrisy. Same idea. So the idea is we don't love because of what we can get from them, but what we can give to them. That's what love is. This kind of love we're talking about. Sincere love. How do you know if your love is sincere? Turn to Luke 6 for a moment. Turn to Luke 6. In Luke chapter 6, verse 27, this is such a revolutionary term in the Bible compared to the world's interpretation of it. You understand that. If there's any word that's been abused in the human language, in our language, it's been the word love. And we're talking here about loving the way Jesus loves us, the way God loves us. But in verse 27 through 35, you get this description. But I say to you, who hear, love your enemies. Well, right off the bat, we're stuck, aren't we? Just, wow, love your enemies, really, who does that? Do good to those who hate you, gets worse. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you and whoever takes away from you what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Don't expect anything in return, type of love. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that for you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those who from from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Comparing your love to God's love. Wow. The next verse will tell us how to do this because it certainly goes against our nature to do any of this. Go back to 1 Peter 1.22. He says in 1.22, fervently love one another from the heart. The last part of that verse. Fervently love one another from the heart. The different word for love here, this is agapeo, unconditional, sacrificial love. He uses two words for love in the same verse. This is the unconditional, sacrificial love that God demonstrates to all of us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us and died for us. Husbands, love your wives. That's sacrificial love. For God so loved the world that he gave sacrificial love. So Peter Peter switches the, the word here 
and says the great cost that God went to, the great price that God went to, to seek our good. And that's what love is. It's seeking the good of somebody else. It's, it's putting what is good for them above what's good for you. Wow. Even if it requires a great cost, even if it hurts you, even if it hurts you to do it. He wants our love to be fervent. You see that in verse 22? Fervent. Go to 1 Peter 4, 8. Same book. 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, 8. Keep fervent in your love for one another. Keep, not just one time, but keep doing that. Keep being fervent. You know what fervent means? Fervent means, it's an athletic, it's an athletic term. It means when you stretch a muscle to the max. It means when you stretch your muscle to the very max, you're running at full speed. You're, you're doing something to the max effort. That's fervent. It's used of Luke, uses it of Jesus praying fervently in the garden where the capillaries are busting and he's bleeding. It's, it's going all out from the heart and from the bottom of your heart, not half-hearted, willing to exert a lot of energy, striving to love one another. Boy, this is, this is how the world will know that we are his disciples, when we love one another like this. When we put the good of others before ourselves. And it's hard because some people are hard to love. There are some personalities that are just difficult for you to love. People have quirks and people have all kinds of uh, attitudes and all those things. And sometimes you just have to ask God, God, give me the extra measure of grace to love this person. Keeping in mind while you're praying that prayer, somebody is probably praying a prayer that says, God, give me grace to love you. So simply applied. If I was going to say how you apply this, I would say we just treat others the way God treats us. You want to know how to love? It's simple. Treat others the way that God treats you. He forgives us. He's kind to us. He is patient with us. He is gracious to us. And this all sounds so impossible. When I read these kinds of things, I, it just sounds so impossible because I know what I'm like. It's just not natural. And the only reason I can do it and the only reason you can do it is because you have been regenerated. If you're a Christian, that means you have been changed from the inside. The grinchiness has been taken out of you. That's what it means. We just play with this word and use it loosely. But it is essential to our testimony to a watching world. It is essential to our testimony to a world that wonders if Christianity is really, if there's really anything to it. It's a word that we can throw around and use loosely, but when we're tested on it, we realize I was just being selfish. I just wanted what I could get out of that, or I wanted to use that person for what I wanted to get out of the relationship, or whatever it is. When the going got tough with that person, I just backed out, because I was really in it for myself. And it wasn't accomplishing for me what I wanted out of that relationship, so therefore I backed out of it. It's sacrificial, fervently loving, stretching to the max because that's how God loved you.
Look at verse 23. If you have been born again, see that? For, no, excuse me, for you have been born again. This is the because. You can do verse 22 because of verse 23. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1. You can do verse 22 because of what verse 23 says. This is Peter's point. He has shown us how to love sincerely and fervently. And now he is telling us why we can do it. Why we can do it. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. This is the reason you have been born again with a seed that cannot be destroyed. That will never die. Everything in life has a seed. Everything. Human life, animal life, plant life all start with some sort of a seed. Everything from the moment is created begins to decay. Except the seed we're talking about here, this imperishable seed. This the seed that brings about spiritual life, the seed which brings about eternal life, it can never decay. It's imperishable. Natural, natural birth and physical growth produce a temporary life, but supernatural birth and supernatural or, and spiritual growth bring about everlasting life. You've seen the concept of being born again. Turn to John chapter 1, verse 12. Hold your hand in 1 Peter. John chapter 1, verse 12. You see this concept of being born again. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Verse 13. This is John 1, 12 and 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is a, a birth brought on by God. Not by you, not by any decision you made, not by anything you did. It's brought on by God. Go to John 3, 3. Jesus, speaking to the most religious person in Israel, said in verse 3 of John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I don't care how many prayers you've prayed. I don't care how many aisles you've walked. I don't care how many decisions you've made. If you have not been born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how many times you go to church. I don't care how much money you give. If you have not been born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And if you have not been born again, you have no capacity to love like these verses talk about. It's just all superficial, outward, emotional stuff. Go to verse 7 of John 3. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Go to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, notice, but have eternal life. Why is it eternal life? Because the seed that causes spiritual life and spiritual growth is the word of God, which is eternal. That's why. That's the reason it's eternal life. It's because God is eternal. Go back to chapter 1, verse 23 of Peter, 1 Peter. It's imperishable, you see that? The living word of God through the living word of God, living and enduring word of God in 1 Peter 1, 23. 
You know the parable of the sower and the seed, right? The sower and the seed. Jesus uses the seed illustration in, in that verse. He says, the sower goes out to, to, to his field and he begins to sow the seed. And the seed falls on different types of soil. Uh, hard soil, rocky soil, you, you know, good fertile soil. I mean, he talks about these four different soils. He, he goes out and he sows the seed. The seed, he says, when he's explaining this parable, he says the seed is the word of God. Exactly what Peter is saying here. The living word of God is the seed. And time will tell, time will tell what kind of soil that seed fell on by what it produces. If it gets choked out, if it never gets its roots to grow, if it, the ground is so hard it never penetrates the surface, There'll be no fruit. But if it's a soil that has been prepared by God, it will bring forth fruit and evidence of salvation will be there and the capacity to love, like Peter says, will be there. He's saying that it's the fruit that comes from teaching the word of God. That's what we do. We, we preach the word of God and it goes out and it lands on different heart conditions and some hearts are hard, and some hearts are rocky, and some hearts are fertile. But at different results when this imperishable word of God is proclaimed. See, Peter's using that same analogy. The word of God is seed. And it's the role of the Holy Spirit to take it into the heart and cause regeneration. He doesn't mention that here, but he mentions it if you're in 1 Peter still. Notice back up in verse 1 and 2 of 1 Peter chapter 1, the end of the verse. 1 Peter chapter 1, at the end of the verse, we were chosen by God according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It's the, word, it's the Spirit of God that takes the Word of God and breaks into the heart with it and makes the gospel attractive that you might believe it. It's all the work of God. That's why Jesus said in John 3, 5, you've got to be born of water and the Spirit. Enter the kingdom of God. Second Thessalonians 2, 13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through the sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. The Spirit was involved in borning you again. That's Regeneation. That's an inside job. That's an internal work. That's nothing you can do yourself. That's the Ezekiel passage we read earlier. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my ways. I will change you from within. He saved us not by deeds we've done, but the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's the reason the Ephesians 6 calls the, the Bible the sword of the Spirit, because that's what the Spirit wields to do His work. When the Word of God is preached, the seed is preached, out, thrown out there, it's the Spirit that takes that and wields it to accomplish His purposes. That's why we call it a living word. It's not just black letters on white pages. It's a living word because the Spirit of God uses it. He wields it as a sword to do his work. James says he brought us forth by the word of truth. The Spirit of God does this. 
It sanctifies us. He says in John 17, he's praying for his disciples. Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Turn to 2 Timothy 3.15. And you've seen this familiar passage, but he says in 2 Timothy 3.15 and 17, verse 15, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The scriptures are what God uses to lead you to salvation. The word of God, that's the seed. That's the imperishable seed. Then 16, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's sanctification. The Spirit is involved in my salvation. The Spirit is involved in my new, new birth. And the Spirit is involved in conforming me to the image of Christ. And the Spirit uses the Word of God to do both. He uses the living, enduring Word of God. That's what, that's what Peter is highlighting for us in 1 Peter 1. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Maybe you're still there. Through the living and enduring word of God. It has power to penetrate our hearts. You can write this verse down. Hebrews 4.12. It's, it's able to, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce deep into us the vision of soul and spirit and to judge your thoughts and your intentions of your heart. It's not subject to decay. It's always relevant. You might think it's irrelevant, but I want to tell you something. If you think it's irrelevant, you're irrelevant. Because it's relevant. It never changes. It never changes. And it's not, it's not the intent that you, the Spirit has to line up with your thinking. The intent is that your thinking must line up with the Word of God. It's always up to date. New philosophies come and go. They're repackaged, they're given new names, but there's nothing new under the sun. All attempts to dethrone God and exalt man are still out there. All the attempts to get rid of God and get God out of the picture, that's always been there. We come up with new plans and they pass and fade, but the word of God endures. It endures. And that's why he quotes... And that's why he quotes from Isaiah. Go to verse 24. Are you back in 1 Peter? Chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. Close with this. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That should sound somewhat familiar. In the foyer of our church, we have a, something on the wall there with Isaiah 40, verse 8. He says these very words. Life is brief. And that's what he's doing here. He's contrasting the brevity of life with the eternality of God's enduring word. That's what he's doing. And life is short. And um, James calls it life a vapor. It's like a vapor. You you can't make plans. I mean, you've always got to have in your mind that this may be my last day. My life is just a vapor. You know what a vapor, a vapor just passes by fast. 
Life is transient. He said, Lord, in Psalm 39, 4, God, make me aware of how transient I am. You get a vase of flowers and you put it in your house and they're beautiful on day one. By day six or five or four or whenever, they start to fade and droop and smell bad. And you, what do you do? You just, but that's not God's word. That's what he says. People have tried to trample it down, tried to get rid of it, tried to burn Bibles and all those kinds of things, and they can't get. It's still here. Those critics are gone. The Bible's still here. God's word is still here. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my words will not pass away. God is eternal. His word is eternal. The seed that regenerates us is the reason we have eternal life. This imperishable seed, this imperishable seed, the living and enduring word of God. And Peter's point in this whole thing has been, that's how you can love the way I've described to you fervently and sincerely. It's because that's what's changed you. That's what's transformed you. And then he ends with this. No, you know, everything in this world is, you, you know this. It's not stable. This world is not stable. Whatever you're building your life on that's not the word of God, it's not stable. I trust you. Trust me. It's not stable. It will not last. It will not endure. God has given us his unchanging word to build our lives on. It's the only stable ground there is. It's the only trustworthy standard there is to live your life by and to commit your life to. That's it. There's nothing else. And we try, we get off focus sometimes and we go out here and we, get to, we go, this is empty and we run back. Because we know. And then he ends with this. And this is the word which was preached to you. It was preached to them. The Word of God was preached to them, and they responded. The question is, have you responded? Have you responded to God's Word? Have you responded to the call to salvation? Have you responded to the call to obey the gospel of Christ? To put your faith and trust in Jesus and what He did for you on the cross? That's the question. It was the word that was preached to them, and they responded. And that's why Peter is telling them, yes, now you have this capacity, and you are enabled to love one another. Something you cannot do apart from me. And God has done that in us, and I praise God for that. Father, thank you for your truth this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for how relevant it is to us today, sitting in this room in 2022. God, to be, know that throughout the ages, many, many have believed this word, have had this word preached to them and have believed it, and lives were transformed and changed. And although so many have tried to stamp it out, and discredit it and destroy it, it still remains. We just thank you for that. May our love in this church increase for one another. We're not an easy bunch of people to love. God, we know that, but we need grace to, to love and to be loved. 
And we pray, God, that we would rely on that grace, rely on that strength that can only come from you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.